Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you so much for stopping by, whether you are a returning listener or listening for the first time. I know that this is a busy time of the year, so I really appreciate you taking a little time out of your schedule to listen to my musings. I'm Meg and I'm coming to you from London. In my podcast, I explore my love of natural materials and the act of making, but from the perspective of somebody concerned about environmental and ethical issues. Although such concerns are always present in my making, I like to approach dilemmas with curiosity and playfulness. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, and that is with hyphens between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention in the podcast in the show notes. These are available on my website, Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet.com, and that's all one word and with no apostrophe between M and S, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? As we are approaching a time of year that is associated with treats and little indulgences, I thought I'd share some thoughts on luxuries, and in particular how trying to make environmentally and ethically kinder choices does not mean a life completely devoid of luxurious materials. I'll also be reviewing a new knitting pattern book, which is most definitely a treat. And to finish up, I shall be sharing my experience of a new-to-me craft that has a bit of a nod to books. So I hope you're settled in with a whip and a favourite drink for half an hour of talk about materials and making. Before we get into the meat of the podcast, I would just like to make a couple of sock-related announcements. Last episode, I waxed lyrical about the Whistle Bear Cuthbert sock yarn. My mohair Wensleydale socks are keeping my toes very toasty indeed, and seem to be wearing well. If you would like to try this yarn too... Whistlebear is currently offering a 20% discount to celebrate the launch of its new website. I think the discount code runs until the end of the year, but all the details are available on the company's website, which is whistlebear.com, and Whistlebear is spelled W-H-I-S-T-L-E-B-A-R-E. Also, Emma, the dyer behind Woolly Mammoth Fibre Company, a new company that specialises in naturally dyed British wool, is carrying out some market research. She is considering commissioning the spinning of a 100% non-superwash British wool sock blend. She hasn't released details of the composition of this wool blend yet, but it's certainly something I'm interested in. Not just in my quest for reliable, nylon-free, non-superwash sock wools, but also as I really like to encourage independent companies that invest in supporting shepherds and mills, build supply chains and can point to clear provenance. If such a wool blend is of interest to you, please do contact Woolly Mammoth Fibres directly. You can find her initial request for input on Instagram at Woolly Mammoth Fibres, and Fibres is spelt the British way, so F-I-B-R-E-S, and it's the post dated 7th of December. Christmas is fast approaching, and I know that many of us knitters might be hoping to receive woolly treats under the tree. As somebody who tries to make environmentally and ethically considered choices, and not just in my making life, people often ask me whether this means I miss out on treats and luxuries. 
For example, recently one of my friends was dismayed to hear that I can no longer drink coffee and that I avoid cheese and alcohol as much as possible as they aggravate my pain levels. He asked me what I did for treats instead. Like me, this chap is environmentally engaged, so not prone to excessive indulgences, but he also understands the psychological need for the occasional treat. I had to think quite hard how to answer his question, because on the food front, I don't feel I'm missing out on delights or treats. I eat tasty meals made from good quality ingredients and with plenty of variety. The same is true of wool. I choose to avoid cashmere and superwash wool for environmental reasons. I avoid cashmere as it contributes to desertification. In recent years, there has been a high demand for cheap cashmere, which means too many goats are grazing on limited and quite precarious grasslands. And to make matters worse, the goats that produce cashmere are voracious foragers. As for superwash wool, the treatments used to make wool machine washable involve caustic chemicals to strip the scales and or polymer-based resins to glue down the remaining scales. Also, both processes are very water and energy intensive. I therefore prefer to avoid such wools, particularly as, in my opinion, they also strip wool of the texture that attracts me in the first place. As with food, choosing to avoid certain processes or breeds doesn't mean a life of deprivation or free from luxurious delights. It just means I find my luxuries and treats elsewhere. I completely understand why many knitters enjoy working with intricately dyed yarns, which are typically based on superwash merino or BFL. The jewel tones, variegated colours or playful speckles can be reminiscent of anything from luscious Murano glass to subtle watercolours. And I recognise why dyers often use superwash walls. They soak up colours with amazing intensity. When seeing skeins of beautifully hand-dyed walls at knitting events, I often think they look like the exquisite desserts I might see in the windows of opulent patisserie shops. Elaborate cakes decorated with cream and decadent fondant icing, rich panna cottas with whimsically spun sugar embellishments, dainty macaroons in jewel shades, or beautifully presented petit four with rich praline centres. Such desserts are captivating and entrancing, but ultimately they are sweet treats that I choose to avoid as they contain lethal nuts and or cream that I struggle to digest. And as I have avoided such sweets for decades, my palate has changed. Treats and luxuries have taken on a different form. I find delight in different things, like the complex flavour of a blood orange or the delicious sourness of morello cherries. Often the luxury is intensified by the short season associated with such fruits. Other culinary treats might be a bitter dark tapenade on crunchy sourdough bread, or a borscht made with young beets and their juicy leaves, or sautéed fresh wild mushrooms on chewy bread. A life with few sweet treats doesn't just mean my taste buds have changed, it also means texture is just as important to me as flavour. An oaty crumble mix turns humble, brambly apples into a rare dessert. The creamy crumbliness of a goat's cheese makes cheese and biscuits just as enjoyable as a dessert of silky panna cotta. And to me, the crisp crunch of a freshly picked ridge cucumber is much more heady than biting into a crunchy petit four. And so it is with wool for me too. I'm not suggesting that soft cashmere or drapey superwash merino in jewel tones are lethal, just that there are other types of luxurious wool if we look beyond the conventional definition of luxury yarn. Like the wool that I'm currently using. 
I'm using a pure Gotland from the little grey sheep that I bought at Edinburgh Yarn Festival earlier this year. I talked about this company in some detail in my first episode, but having now worked with their wool, I thought it was worth giving a more detailed review. Gotland, a breed originally from Scandinavia but that has been a long-term resident in the UK, is a wool that is often passed over because of the first impressions in the hank, but it's actually one of my favourite yarns, thanks to its character and amazing luster. For me, garments knit in Gotland are real gems. The Fleece and Fibre Sourcebook describes Gotland as an unusual wool resembling fine mohair or an English luster long wool. It adds that it is also more comfortable in next-to-the-skin garments than would normally be expected from the characteristic fibre diameters. Those technical specifications are a staple length of 3 to 7 inches, but often more like 3 to 4, as Gotlands are usually sheared twice a year, and a micron count of somewhere between 18 to the low 20s in lambs and 27 to 34 in adult Gotlands. The fibre can be woollen or worsted spun, but the one that I'm working with is a worsted preparation. Gotland definitely has a texture, but it's one that develops as you work it and wear it. In the hank it can feel a little dry, but once you start working with it, it softens considerably, and it produces a beautifully drapey fabric with a hint of a halo. Similarly, when you first pop a Gotland cardigan or sweater on, you are aware of some texture. But as body heat interacts with the fibre, the wool becomes supple and soft. The best way that I can describe the texture would be like running your hand over a lavender bush in full bloom. Yes, that has more of a texture than, say, stroking a rose petal, but it is a pleasant, engaging texture. With this project, I am getting a very good feel of how the wool develops, as I had actually got about two-thirds of the way into knitting the Salal cardigan by Andy Sutherland before deciding to rip it out and start again with another pattern. The Gotland looked wispy in the simple lace placket design and produced a whimsically drapey fabric, but I was concerned about whether it would be too drapey for the armhole construction. I decided to defer my decision until I had knit half a sleeve to see how the wool coat with the structure of the construction method. As suspected, whilst the yarn is durable, I didn't feel it had quite enough body to cope with the sleeve shaping, which is knit top-down using short rows for the sleeve cap. So I ripped the project out and immediately cast on a lush cardigan, a tried and tested pattern by Tin Can Knits, which I had always considered as one of the potential patterns for this wool. You see, I have knit this pattern before and in a different Gotland yarn, and that cardigan is still one of my favourites. I know that a lot of knitters are probably cringing at the thought of frogging hours of work, not to mention of casting on again immediately, but I didn't hesitate to unravel the cardigan and cast on another pattern. This wool is an absolute joy to work with and it will be delightful to wear, and having experienced how the wool transforms itself between my fingers, I was very eager to turn this precious material into a garment, and a garment that will do it justice for years to come. Apart from its drape, Gotland's other amazing feature is its luster and how it takes colour. The natural shade of the fleeces ranges from silver grey to almost charcoal. When dyed, these natural shades give the dyed colour a more depth and an almost ephemeral lustrous quality. Although I like my natural shades, I'm not averse to colour and I absolutely love the shade that I'm using. It is incredibly hard to describe. It's somewhere between a burnished copper and a muted rose, but at times you get hints of the silver sheen that you might find on fresh plums. For somebody who enjoys working with hand-dyed semi-solid tones, Gotland might be an interesting breed to explore. 
At approximately £20 for 100 grams, which means 250 metres or 275 yards of DK weight wool, this is definitely a luxury, but it's not significantly more expensive than, say, a merino silk cashmere or a BFL silk blend. Also, as I mentioned in episode 1, when buying the little grey sheep Scotland, you know which farm, shepherd and mill your money is supporting, and that this farm is using the sheep for conservation reasons. I completely understand that most knitters will not want to forswear beautifully dyed superwash wools, and I fully recognise their desire to support their favourite indie dyers as well. I'm a great advocate of supporting small independent businesses, as the Scotland wool treat illustrates. I'm also very aware that my personal, environmentally motivated choices limit which dyers I can support. But even if you continue to enjoy these conventional luxury blends, I would definitely encourage you as a knitter or even as a dyer to also explore other breeds that don't necessarily share the luxury cachet, as there are some real gems to be discovered. For example, I'm saving my pennies as I would love to knit a shawl in Kettle Young Company's Baskerville. This intriguing blend is based on Gotland, but has a hint of silk and a touch of Exmoor, and was developed exclusively for the Kettle Yarn Company. This means it combines the luster and drape of Gotland, the drape and sheen of silk, and the lofty bounce of Exmoor. Add to that Linda's exquisite colour skills, and you get a yarn that is luxurious in a non-conventional way. If you are interested in exploring other breeds but aren't sure where to start, I would thoroughly encourage you to follow the year of wool exploration that Louise Scully, aka Knit British, is organising. She is encouraging us knitters, crocheters and spinners and weavers to explore a different breed each month and is crowdsourcing detailed reviews. The first four months of 2018 will be devoted to North Ronaldsey, Gotland, Ryland and Jacobs respectively. If you want to learn more about this journey of discovery, do check out episode 96 of the Knit British podcast or Louise's blog post dated 16th September, both of which are available at knitbritish.net. As I'm focusing on treats this episode, I would like to share a short review of a gem of a book with you. The long and eagerly awaited This Thing of Paper by Carrie Westerman. I will be up front and say that this review is not entirely impartial. I squealed with delight when I learned about the concept behind this book and was delighted to participate in the crowdfunding for it, both financially and in the blog tour that promoted the Kickstarter campaign. I would also add that I was not the only person thrilled at the prospect of this book. This title was fully funded within 25 hours of the crowdfunder being announced. If you don't know Carrie Westerman, who is also known as Carrie Bookish on Instagram, Twitter and Ravelry, she is a designer with a penchant for encouraging discovery, exploration and making. Not only is she known for her stunning shawl designs in particular, she also likes to introduce us to new worlds, lesser-known artists and writers, social issues, and most of all, she encourages us to discover our own agency through the act of making. As well as loving literature and art, Carrie has an extensive knowledge of the history of books as objects. This thing of paper is a collection of 11 knitting patterns inspired by the process of making books and particularly at the pivotal moment in history when manuscript books were slowly replaced by a new technology, the printing press. The title itself is a reference to a derisory remark made by a grumpy Benedictine abbot about the newfangled technology. 
This book is also the first knitting book to be included in the Gutenberg Museum's archive of book history, which is a real testament to Carrie's work. Each pattern is prefaced by an essay that explores the inspiration behind the design. There are essays that look at the nature of materials and the act of making, as in the vellum cardigan, or the synergies between writing, mark making, communicating and knitting, as in the scriptorium mittens or the woodcut shawl. Other essays focus on issues such as the illusory nature of perfection in our making, as in the essay that accompanies the incunabla cardigan, or the agency that comes with making, as in the marginalia sweater essay, or the power of reading and the importance of librarians, as in the preface to the Bibliotheca Shawl. I was lucky enough to attend the London launch of this book, and particularly remember two moments. Carrie mentioned how she set out to write a pattern book inspired by book history around the time of the introduction of the printing press, but that she was surprised at how political it will become. Not party political with a capital P, but political in the sense of challenging preconceived roles, or of agency to speak up and forge a different future, or the relevance of reading and making to society and well-being. At times she seemed a little apologetic about the political undertone to her essays. To me, though, it felt entirely appropriate, almost inevitable, that the essays would have a political undercurrent. After all, the printing press was developed at a time when the status quo, the establishment, was increasingly being challenged by dissenting voices. A new technology and a new way of thinking found each other. It's impossible to say what shape the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason would have taken if it hadn't been for the printing press. The press didn't change things overnight, but it did play a role in democratising books, the written word, writing in the vernacular, reading and education. Centuries on, we live in an age of different new technologies, new ways of communicating, new ways of accessing information to encourage our making, new channels for disseminating our thoughts and art, new ways to find our voice. To me, it makes perfect sense that Carrie would draw out the synergies with the past and the possibilities for the future as she does, for example, in the essay that accompanies the Salter Shawl and the letterpress cowl. The other snippet that I remember was Carrie whispering to me, read the first essay and I want to hear what your thoughts are. Many of the essays, including the preface to Scriptorium and Incunabula, resonated deeply with me and even reduced me to tears. But the essay prefacing vellum made my heart leap and made me punch the air with delight. It focuses on materials and making and especially the paradox of the growing disregard and disinterest in materials in a highly materialistic world. It also looks at the reality of the slow processes that have typified making in the past centuries. You as listeners to this podcast will know that I am fascinated by materials, the material world and the raw materials used to make the objects that flow through our life, both as a maker but also as a sustainability researcher and practitioner. I'm acutely aware that when I talk about materials, I need to walk a careful line so that my environmental and ethical concerns don't just become background noise that can easily be ignored. I'm therefore delighted every time I hear another voice that queries how we can value materials if we don't relate to them, or how we can appreciate things if we don't recognise the processes and the human endeavour that goes into making them. That delight is particularly intense when it is a voice as eloquent as Carrie's, one which goes straight to the heart of these issues, but in a beautiful context. So to conclude, this thing of paper is a book of beautiful patterns, but it is also a book that challenges us to think, and to question, discover, connect and make, 
And most of all, it gives us permission to use our voice, even if that voice upsets the apple cart. I always knew that this thing of paper would be a real treat, so I pre-ordered a second copy to share it with a listener of the podcast. I know that many of you will have backed this project yourself, so are already enjoying the book, possibly even knitting a patterns from it. But if you don't already have this book, or if you do and know a knitter who might also enjoy it, you can win a copy by popping over to the Ravelry group to answer the following question. As this thing of paper is a book about materials and making, and as all materials in some way or another are drawn from the natural world, I would love to hear which books have had an impact on how you view materials, or how you view the act or process of making, and or the natural world. The books in question don't need to be knitting or craft related. It could be anything, uh, maybe a novel or a children's book, a cookery or gardening book, maybe a wildflower guide or even a biography. There are many books that have had such an effect on me. For example, I could recommend uh, English Bread and Yeast Cooking, which is an absolute classic by the food writer Elizabeth David. Although this book is 40 years old, it's a fascinating reference book about the history of bread and the characteristics of different grains, as well as a good basic recipe book. Another such book is Richard Maybe's The Unofficial Countryside, On the one hand, this is an exploration of the pockets of natural history we can find in British cities and suburbs. On the other hand, it is a book that has changed the way I view and connect with nature on a day-to-day basis, even in the unlikeliest of places. If you aren't a member of Ravelry, but would still like to enter the giveaway, you can do so by leaving a comment on the blog post that accompanies this episode. I will copy all those entries over individually to the Ravelry group for ease of drawing the prize. I shall keep this thread open till I record the next podcast, which is likely to be the second or third week of January. So good luck, and I very much look forward to reading your book recommendations. Finally, I thought I would share another type of making I recently learnt that ties in nicely with my love of books. Not only have I always loved reading, I have always enjoyed the act of holding a book and turning the pages. From a young age, I took delight in the feel of paper, the materials used for book covers, the intricacy of stitch binding and the luxury of beautiful end papers. As an inveterate note taker, I also enjoy a good notebook and have numerous ones on the go at any one time. One for gardening notes, another for recipes, one for musings and observations, a separate one to record my natural dyeing experiments, and numerous ones for note-taking at workshops and seminars. So a couple of years ago, I started to learn bookbinding, picking up skills at one-day workshops and through hands-on practice at home. One of the reasons for learning to make my own notebooks was that I like a good quality paper, one that takes fountain pen ink without bleeding. Another was because I wanted to avoid notebooks with plasticised covers and in the process use up the array of quality paper I had salvaged from magazines and packaging. But mostly it was a case of wanting to learn a practical craft that celebrates not only a simple everyday object but also the act of stopping, noticing, reflecting and committing something to words. Last month I took part in a workshop that would allow me to add a touch of luxury and elegance to my bookbinding, the traditional craft of paper marbling which developed in Persia and Turkey around the 16th century. The workshop was organised by Freya Scott, who is at Paperwilds on Instagram. 
She is a bookbinder and paper marbler who not only makes beautiful covers and end sheets, but has also mastered the almost extinct craft of marbling paper edges of books. I had first heard about Freya from Joe Dixon, also known as Bookbinding Joe on Instagram, who runs the bookbinding workshops that I attended at St Bride's Foundation. But I also had learnt of her through her work for Bound by Veterans, which is also on Instagram. This is a charity that helps ex-servicemen and women who are recovering from physical injury or mental problems. During the lunch break, Freya explained how organising a bookbinding programme to help veterans adapt to their new circumstances actually led to the development of new city and guild courses and qualifications and even apprenticeships. This work is not only helping individual veterans, but is also strengthening the bookbinding and marbling crafts in general. But back to the workshop. Freya took us through the steps involved in marbling paper with water-based paints. For paint to float on water, the water needs to be thickened with calaginin or Irish moss. Although this mix, known as a scythe, had been prepared the night before, we got detailed instructions about how to prepare our own and how to store the mixture. Carrageenan is a substance that is extracted from edible red seaweed. It has been used for centuries in food preparations, typically to thicken milky liquids or as a gelatin substitute. But it's also used in everyday products like shampoo, toothpaste, shoe polish, etc. When mixed with water and poured into a shallow tray, it makes the water quite dense and resistant to the touch. A bit like a consistency of a very thick wallpaper paste. At this point, we were introduced to the first variable in paper marbling. The size will change depending on temperature and humidity, and it will also improve with, with a little use before it decays. Next, we learnt to prepare the paper so it would take the paint. As a natural dyer, this process felt very familiar, down to the use of potassium alum dissolved in boiling water. This is another natural substance that has been used for generations for medicinal and even culinary purposes, as well as in tanning, natural dyeing and certain traditional photographic processes. Finally, we got to play with the paints, mixing gouache colours with water and the merest hint of a surfactant to help the colour disperse when it hits the water. Traditionally, ox gall is used, but it's rather a messy affair to prepare, so we used a drop of a very, very weak washing-up liquid solution. This is where Freya highlighted another variable of the craft. There is no set ratio of water, pigment and surfactant. We needed to mix the paint to a milky consistency and then test it by dropping a little onto the thickened water and checking the degree with which it spread or sunk. Each paint brand and each colour within the brand varies depending on the pigment and binders used, so each needs to be mixed and tested individually. As a natural dyer and somebody who is slowly learning to relax my perfectionist instincts, I am really intrigued about variables. I suppose they encourage me to find the balance between mastering a craft but acknowledging that I'm only part of the wonderful mix that goes into the finished product. Once the paper was mordanted and the paints were mixed, we got down to the creative bit, combining colours and learning traditional patterns, from the simple Turkish stones and feather-like Gelget pattern to free-flowing fantasy swirls and playful French curls, made with a simple bodkin. After lunch, we added combs and rakes to produce more intricate patterns, like the classic non-pare, or unparalleled, which was the first marble end paper I came across years ago. 
We also learnt the delicate peacock pattern and the double cable, which reminded me of the feathered grid patterns used to decorate the classic millefeuille patisserie. It was very obvious how, even in the space of a few hours, we seven students each developed a distinct style, both in terms of colour preferences and the flourish or restraint with which we used bodkins and combs. Like any good tutor, Freya encouraged us to play and experiment. So whilst I mostly stuck to browns, oranges, maroons and pinks, no surprise there, I occasionally ventured out of my comfort zone. The results were marble pages that reminded me of the 1970s and lava lamps, and even a couple of patterns that were a nod to Bieber, the iconic 1960s fashion store. As the day drew to a close and the paints were running low, we diluted a couple with more of the Oxcall substitute and tried our hand at the Spanish wave, a technique that adds a ripple-like effect to simpler patterns. This technique involves a lot of control and practice to achieve a consistent, evenly coloured ripple, but it was certainly fun to give it a try. A few weeks later, I received my marbled pages dried and pressed and ready for use. Of course, I left the workshop with more than just about a dozen marbled sheets. I left with a head buzzing with ideas about possible colour combinations, but also with some ideas for fun experiments. I shall definitely be exploring paper marbling further, both to make covers and end papers for notebooks, but also to produce slim volumes of my dad's short stories for my siblings. Most of all, though, I'm fascinated to explore the possible crossovers between paper marbling and my fascination with natural dyes, as well as textiles. One of the projects I have in mind over the Christmas break is to practice thickening my natural dyes to a paint rather than an ink consistency. And as I don't have the space or facilities to dye multiple metres of organic cotton or linen for my dressmaking, ideas are bubbling away about making shorter lengths of marbled fabric to add a hint of frivolity to clothes in plain organic cotton. Before I get too carried away though with these frivolous and creative musings, I'd better wrap up this episode so I can prepare some culinary treats for the festive season. I've promised Mr M some candied peel dipped into bitter black chocolate and also a batch of mudlands. So if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a lovely time with a minimal amount of stress. And if you find Christmas a difficult, lonely or bittersweet time, I hope you find comfort in reaching out to somebody who understands. Fortunately, we are increasingly open about the complex emotions that this season brings. In any event, I hope that in the coming weeks you find a lot of pleasure, peace and strength in your making, whatever your medium or craft may be. And I look forward to sharing more moments of making and discovering materials in the new year. Take care and speak to you soon.